In what we're doing now, we are getting to a feel of the world that is neither organic nor mechanical. Simply what it is. We don't know the contrast, just as we don't know the contrast voluntary involuntary. We don't know the contrast organic mechanical. Right, folks. I have uh, hopefully a good connection here. Folks who are listening, I am sitting actually in a suburban right now, looking up at the main road, which I believe is 1806, leading into the camps. Uh, I am at the main camp right now. Folks are coming from the Sacred Stone camp. There's about, I would say, at least a thousand, if not a couple thousand veterans who are gathering on the road. Some estimates have it up to 3,000 or 4,000 veterans. Uh, some of the estimates overall is that there's about 30,000 people here. I would suggest that there's probably about 10 or 15,000 people here. Right now, it's uh, about 30 degrees, uh, very wet snow falling, uh, almost whiteout conditions. You could probably see uh, about a half a football field, maybe a football field away. Uh, the wind is picking up. We're expecting the weather to get very, very cold this evening and into tomorrow. Uh, right now, the veterans are going to, as far as we understand, are going to march down the road in a symbolic gesture. Uh, that is something we will get back to because there's been much discussion and actually a lot of really interesting and, I think, worthwhile debate about uh, the plans that have shifted. Uh, of course, as everyone knows now, uh, yes, the Obama administration, had, the Army Corps of Engineers has denied the plan for the easement or the permit for the easement, which is needed to complete the project. Uh, that'll be kicked down the road to the next administration. So before I go into more broader reflections about what's happening here, uh, the very specific decision that was made yesterday Many people, of course, assume that was because of the veterans and the thousands of people who congregated here over the last few days. I've spoken to a lot of people, uh, both in the camps and outside of the camps, who've said that the uh, population has exploded since Thanksgiving and especially since Labor Day. Well, Labor Day and then again, especially since Thanksgiving. Um, people are happy. I mean, people were very jubilant yesterday after the decision. People have, I think, for those who are listening, you have to understand that the living conditions here are very rough. Uh, imagine being in North Dakota uh, with, you know, what's now going to be close to six inches to a foot of snow on the ground. Uh, people sleeping in tents, makeshift shacks, makeshift yurts, makeshift teepees. Uh, a lot of people have donated wood-burning stoves to help keep people warm. Uh, we've spent most of our time around a campfire. There, right now, as I'm looking out the window, there are a ton of veterans who are lining up to do the symbolic march. Um, yesterday, after the decision was made, uh, there, the, the response was mixed. Okay, so for the people who have been here for many, many months, the response was that very jubilant, people were happy, dancing, singing songs, uh, literally hundreds of people. Uh, screaming and yelling at the one fire, uh, celebrating uh, what is a small victory. But if you went and spoke with people around the camps, and particularly the veterans, and particularly uh, natives from this area, and even from around the country, and let's remember, folks, there are people from around the world here. 
So it's been quite amazing. I mean, I've met people from Scotland, Australia, Canada, uh, met people from uh, China yesterday, uh, reporter for uh, an independent reporter from Japan. So there are quite literally people from every walk of life at these camps. It is very tough living out here. Uh, the, it is no joke. So, you know, for the people who are out there listening and wondering or watching these events take place and wondering what are the camps like, uh, it's very bare bones. The veterans who showed up because of the amount of donations that they received, and I would argue because of the sort of organizational capacity that a lot of veterans, uh, I think, obtained from their military service, uh, there has been makeshift chow halls set up. There's been makeshift supply tents set up. There are medic, uh, medic areas. Um, there's a legal area. Uh, so things have come together uh, quite well, um, but but it's also, you know, it's a very, the area is huge. It's really hard, and, you know, I apologize for the, uh, for my sort of rambling, but it's been very hard to process everything that's happening and to get on the phone here and just do the radio program. There's a lot of moving parts here. Uh, as you can imagine, with 10 or 15,000 people, there is no organizational structure, uh, and there are more negatives to positives. Uh, to that. So for the people out there who are saying, oh, we don't need leaders, we don't need structure, this event, if any of the events I've been to, proves that we indeed need uh, some kind of an organizational infrastructure. Uh, the, de- the decisions that are being made are centralized decision-making. Uh, there's not a lot of uh, good word that comes down the pipeline. People in the military obviously understand that lingo. I would say that it's very hard to understand what's happening here at any given time there are actions there are people who get arrested there are things that happen uh you don't really know because if you're on one side of the camp you can't really see or talk to people on the other side of the camp unless you travel over there and even if you walk over there or if you make it to the other side of the camp you might get 15 different perspectives 15 different ideas about what's happening from the 15 different people that you speak to so everyone here uh has a different perspective as is i guess the case with anything um, but it's been very interesting to see the response to the uh, small victory yesterday. So, again, for the people who have been here for months and months on end, they were, I think, much more happy, uh, much more jubilant than the people who had just showed up. So what happened was we arrived Saturday, and we walked – excuse my voice, too – we went to the uh, Eagle Butte area that was a rendezvous area, sort of a coordinating area for veterans who are coming into town for this event, coming to the camps for this event. Um, that area um, was processing hundreds and hundreds of veterans at a time. When we got to that area, we were being told by a woman that uh, we were going to get body armor, people were going to get training with their gas masks, make sure that they have the right gear for when indeed we built a wall in front of the protesters and the police. However, when we got to the main camp and when we started to get debriefings from Wes Clark Jr. and a couple of tribal leaders, uh, we also saw Tulsi Gabbard there. I have to say, folks, I don't know if anyone else is talking about this. I don't know. I highly doubt any of the mainstream media is talking about this, and I even highly doubt the folks at the Young Turks or Democracy Now! quite understand what's going on here. But there are major divisions that are taking place at this camp. This is So, yes, everyone at this camp is on the same page what stopped the pipeline ASAP. 
However, when we get past all of this sort of superficial bullshit, like, oh, yes, we're all here, we're going to protect the earth, yes, we're all here to support indigenous people, the natives here are very divided, and so are the people who have come to support them, including the veterans. So many veterans, including myself, came here specifically to engage in a direct action. We came to Standing Rock to form a barricade between the police and the protesters. And, the, well, as people are trying to refer to people here as water protectors, whatever, this is just rhetorical uh, nonsense. This is for the media, okay, because uh, they don't want to be seen as protesters. They don't want to be seen as water protectors, et cetera, et cetera. So there were official statements that were released by indigenous leaders that said, we just don't want this pipeline on indigenous land. You have to reroute it. There are many younger indigenous people, grassroots activists, more radical activists who are saying, we don't want pipelines anywhere. We don't care if it's an indigenous land. We don't care if it's on a white person's land. We don't care if it's on a black person's land. We don't care if it's on a Latino or a Latina's land. They don't care. They want no pipelines. That's the overwhelming sentiment if you walk around the camps and talk with people. Now, one of the advantages I have from being an activist for the last 10 years and making connections all over the place is that I'm not limited to the sort of circles that a lot of people in the press are limited to. So I've been able to bounce from camp to camp. I've been able to go to different sites, go to different campfires, different tents, talk to people, and they've been open enough to share their ideas with me and share where they're coming from, their frustrations, some of these contradictions, and so on. So there is a definite divide between the, the tribal, so-called tribal leadership and the rank-and-file natives, the natives who are operating at a more grassroots level. So, for instance, you have the Red Warrior Camp. The Red Warrior Camp is dislocated from the two other major camps, and they have been the people who have been primarily responsible for the direct action. Now, these folks are primarily younger native folks. Um, they want more direct actions. They want more militancy. They don't believe for a second that the so-called victory yesterday is the end of the game. I think anyone who's politically savvy out there understands that the fight is not over. Uh, this has been kicked down the road to the next administration, and I think anyone out there who thinks that the, that the incoming Trump administration isn't going to approve this pipeline is completely out of their mind. So the conversations that took place in campfires around uh, the protest camps yesterday uh, largely focused on what we were going to do leading up to January 20th. So in the dead of winter, can you get enough people out here to continue this struggle? Can you leave a remaining segment of the camp here to organize and prepare for the upcoming struggle when indeed Donald Trump takes the oath of office on January 20th? That is the major, questions for, major question that activists and organizers on the ground here need to understand. Now, the other problem, and I've seen this with virtually everyone I've spoken to here, almost no one who is running anything here, if you could even say that some people run the show, have ever been involved with political campaigns like this. So there is a serious lack of organizational leadership on the ground here. There is a serious lack of experience on the ground here. What this camp needs and what people need to do here is to connect with serious organizers, people who have organized events on this scale before, because there is massive confusion. The logistics are screwed up. The word coming down from the top in terms of where people are supposed to go, what the word is, uh, what the actions are, what time they're planned, very confusing. 
the woman who was running the media sort of coordination center, wonderful woman, Kathleen. She was very nice to me. But when she was briefing us on the media, she told us this is the first time I ever did this. Well, with all due respect to Kathleen and whoever put her in that position, I'm sorry. But at this time, in this kind of a situation, the person who should be running the media tent and the liaison from the media to the protesters should be someone who has the experience to do that. Um, in my thinking, this event is a seminal moment, not only in the history of the United States, uh, and I don't want to overstate that. I think that is very true, uh, especially if you ask the people who are here. And I think also the, from the word I've been getting from Americans and people around the world, that holds true as well. Uh, but this is a seminal moment in terms of left-wing political activism. These kinds of movements, movements, these kinds of moments, these kinds of events, uh, they need to be as successful as possible. Occupy could have been exceedingly more successful if they had serious organizers and a serious organizational structure. This event is the same. It's the same case. Uh, most of the people I've spoken to, this is the first time they've ever been to an action like this. So that's very encouraging. You'd like, I would hope. And I would think that this kind of an event would sort of spark people for the rest of their lives to become involved with political activism, that this isn't just about showing up to major protest events every couple months. This isn't about going to uh, uh, these kinds of camps. Uh, this, is a, this is a rare thing. This isn't sustainable. Uh, you can see that uh, by the sort of equipment and the kind of gear that people brought. Many people have been here for a long time. Uh, many people are coming from states that have never experienced negative 10, 15, 20, negative 30, 40 degree weather with the wind chill. That poses a major problem. Uh, I, there is a serious uh, safety concern for the people who are here. That's undoubtedly. Um, oh, boy, what else can I say? I've been just rambling and rambling. So uh, what else? What else am I thinking? I apologize, folks, but I've. Just got done splitting firewood and trying to get supplies to a bunch of veterans who are in a snowstorm uh, who are trying to march to the front gate, the front bridge right now. Uh, what I'll say, going back to the politics of what's happening here, there's a major division, as usually is, between union leadership and the rank and file, between the black pastors and the liberal class and the black community and the rank and file activists and, and the sort of uh, radical activists that I met in Ferguson big divide between the rank-and-file veterans and the rank-and-file natives who are here and the leadership or so-called leadership within the veterans community or within this particular moment and within this particular organization. So this Michael Wood, no idea who he is, glad he put on the event, has absolutely no experience political or with political organization, has no business being called a leader here. Neither does Wes Clark Jr., uh, I heard a goofy speech from Wes Clark Jr. the other night with Tulsi Gabbard sitting on a table behind him smiling like a moron, uh, saying, oh, I can't believe this is happening in the U.S. At that point, many of us actually walked out of the room. Uh, that level of naivety, folks, I'm sorry, but we can't deal with that anymore. And these fucking liberals who keep moving into these events and stealing the energy, we've seen it before. And we saw it in Wisconsin when we were camped out, a movement led by graduate students, occupying the Capitol building, and what happens? The unions move in, the Democratic Party leadership or so-called leadership moves in, and they direct all of that radical anger and all of radical energy into a failed recall campaign. 
So the same thing has happened in Standing Rock, folks. I don't know if the decision was made because the veterans were here and they figured, all right, look, let's appease people for a little while. Let's let the veterans go home. We will wait until Trump takes office, and then we will strike. And at that moment, that's when this pipeline project will start again. Anyone who thinks otherwise, again, is out of their mind. So with Tulsi Gabbard and with Wes Clark Jr. and the rest of these bozos who moved in, they immediately told a room of a 1,000 veterans, those of us who showed up early on Saturday, that there would be no direct action. Now, let me tell you, the veterans who are here, many of whom came here willing to put their lives on the line. This isn't a joke. This isn't hyperbolic. This isn't the overblowing or trying to overstate what the, what the facts are here on the ground. I'm telling you that I've talked to hundreds, if not over a thousand people over the last two days, running around interviewing, having conversations, eating dinner with folks, sitting around campfires, sharing cigarettes or a cigar or whatever. This, there is a major division here, and the people who are rank-and-file activists have to organize themselves because these people are leading us to a dead end. The Tulsi Gabbards of the world, the West Clark Juniors of the world, the liberal progressive media types of the world, their leadership is a dead end, folks. I, I, we can, I cannot stress this enough. We have to break away from this idea that there are tribal leaders out there that should, be with, that should be treated with the utmost respect, no matter how ridiculous their politics are. We have to get rid of this idea, especially in the veterans community, among veterans who are actually conscious with decent politics, that there are leaders out there that are going to lead us to the promised land. That doesn't exist. It never existed. And in the 10 years that I've been involved, I have seen this all too often, Wisconsin being the prime example with 120,000 people on the ground in Wisconsin willing to conduct what I think would have been one of the only reasonable and actual general strikes that I could imagine. 120,000 people. I think Madison is a town of 200,000. Could have shut down the town. We've got two to 4,000 veterans on the ground right now. We can do anything we want with the correct leadership, with the correct vision, with the correct objectives, strategy, and tactics, and we have none of those. All of this energy, all of the resources, has led to a symbolic march today with thousands of veterans gathering on the main road to march down to the barricades, make some ridiculous statement, and then march back to the camps or march back to their cars so they can go home. That is not why the vast majority of veterans I know came here to do. That is not what they came here to do. That is not what I came here to do. Now, am I happy that I'm here? Absolutely. Am I happy with the people? I, I mean, the people I've met, everything, the experiences, they've been amazing. No question about this. But there were veterans who came here to put their lives on the line. And there were veterans who came here to engage in even more direct militant action. And I think with the correct organization, they could have done so. And we could still do so. The estimates are that there's maybe a few hundred cops here maybe another 100 to 200 uh, security force people, private security firms. Let's say there's 1,000 police officers and security guards here. They are outnumbered 15 to 1 by the camp protesters, and they are outnumbered 4 to 1 at the high estimate with 4,000 veterans, 
four to one veterans to security and police. We should be marching through the barricade, locking ourselves to that pipeline, or forcing those security guards and those police officers to shoot at us with rubber bullets, concussion grenades, whatever the hell else they have. And again, I don't think this story is actually getting out. People have to go to these events, and they can't hang around the press tent, and they can't hang around at the fancy camps and go talk to people. And then at night, like a lot of the people, I stood in a press line yesterday for five hours to get my credentials. And most of the journalists I spoke to in that press line are staying 15 miles to the south at the casino. I'm sorry, folks. But if you want to do serious work, if you want to seriously understand these movements, if you want to have a serious analysis, if you want people to take you seriously, or if you don't want to be embarrassed when you run into somebody like myself or someone else who is actually looking at these things, I think, in a much deeper, more complex way, then you had better get your asses out of the hotels, get your asses out of the motels, and get where the people are. Go stay in the camps. Go talk to people. Take off your press badge. You don't have to quote people directly. You don't have to obviously break, break your, uh, your sort of principles in terms of uh, uh, giving up sources and so on, talking about things that people want to keep off the record. But let's be serious, folks. These 4,000 veterans didn't come here for a symbolic march in the snow, and that is what's happening as we speak. I'm looking at it through the windows of my car, or the car we, we rented at least. A huge disappointment in that regard. I'm starting with the bad because I want to leave you with the good. But this is a huge disappointment. And if you talk with veterans who came here, not Wes Clark Jr., not Tulsi freaking Gabbard, not whoever the fuck Michael Wood is, but the people who came here, the people who are organized on a daily basis, who are working with social movements and organizations outside of simply showing up to this event. They are utterly upset with the way that things have played out here, and rightfully so. We had a moment here at Standing Rock to do something truly special, and it was once again squandered because we have shit for leadership, and we have a mentality among people, not only in the military or former military, but people in general, of just listening to what these so-called leaders say without asking serious questions and without challenging them. These people must be challenged because they are constantly going to refocus and redirect our attention to symbolic nonsense like this march that's taking place right now. And I hate to describe it like this uh, because there has been so much energy put into this. There have been so many resources there have been so many people who have donated their time and energy to this. And we did get a small victory out of it. And I say we, I shouldn't even say we, the people who have been here for months, those are the people who should have celebrated yesterday's victory. And as one of the native, native gentlemen that I interviewed yesterday said, you know what, brother, every now and then we need small victories. And people needed to dance. And they needed to relax. And they needed to enjoy each other's company. This has been a highly stressful environment. This environment reminds me of a war zone. The camps, the way they're set up, the helicopters flying overhead, the police spotters that are out there looking at traffic coming in. This is without question as reminiscent of a war zone as I've ever seen outside of maybe Ferguson. 
much different environment. Obviously, we're in a, we're, they're in an urban environment. We're in a rural environment, extremely rural. The only sign of civilization away from the camps is about 15 miles away, and that's the casino where most of the journalists are staying. And, you know, they flew in the, the normal types yesterday. I saw Naomi Klein walking around. I, I don't know if Bill McKibben was here, but it's, it's the, sort of the same old shit. You know, the same old folks pumping the same old bullshit. Instead of having critical conversations, like why is it with 4,000 veterans here, veterans who are willing to put their lives on the line, that we're doing a symbolic march instead of harnessing that energy for a massive act of civil disobedience at the very least. That's at the very least. Now, some of the other reflections and ideas and stories that have been shared from veterans that I've spoken to over the last several days will be articulated in a long article that I'm going to write. Now, my friend Tony, who's been doubling as sort of my photographer here over the last 24 hours, he's up... uh, photographing the veterans march right now and we spoke and photographed many people spoke to and photographed many people yesterday around the camp some people were a little more again more jubilant than others about the victory particularly those who've been camped out for a long time but there was a great sense of skepticism among most of the people that i spoke to yesterday Um, they don't believe that this fight is over they don't just want to stop pipelines from being put in in indigenous lands they want to stop pipelines from being put in anywhere anytime throughout the world not just in the united states and i think that's the that is the sentiment those are the people that have to be organized in the future these kind of events so there's a huge contradiction here would we have gotten three four thousand veterans to show up without wesley clark jr and without michael woods the answer to that is most likely no. But that doesn't mean that we have to rely on people like that. What that means is that we need to take this as a lesson, go home, learn from it, and decide how we are going to better organize ourselves. And how are we going to create institutions that have a vision, that have objectives, that have a clear strategy, and that have a clear uh, set of tactics to achieve that strategy. Or, I'm sorry, to fit into that strategy to achieve your objectives and goals. And once again, I apologize if I'm not quite as uh, on the ball as I usually am. I'm on probably five solid hours of sleep over the last few days and blah, 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 you know, no food, all this other crap. I'm not complaining about that damn thing because, as I mentioned, I am meeting people here who quit their jobs to be here, which is quite amazing. Some people might say that that's a privilege to do that or you might be privileged to do that. I would also argue you have to make a great sacrifice to give up your living just to come here for something that you feel in your heart you need to do. I have great respect for that. There are people here who have been here for months. Now, as far as the demographics, a lot of natives disproportionately, as would be expected. I haven't seen very many black people. That's something to keep in mind. That's a huge division within the environmental movement, geographically, uh, the kind of resources that it takes to get to a place like this, um, the environment in which this place is located. This is very different from where uh, large segments of black people live. So there's, there's no bullshit. This is no, I don't think there's anything offensive 
about us saying that. I think we need to uh, understand the reality of what's happening here. So on the positive side, again, I would, I would uh, reference the amount of sacrifices people made. The people have been here for months. People quit their job to be here. I mean, I find all of that quite amazing and quite inspirational. I spoke to a veteran yesterday whose wife is an activist. She's been begging him to get involved with work. This is the first event he's ever been to, and he said it was the greatest experience of his life. So on a subjective level, people are truly learning a lot about themselves and about what they stand for and who they are at events like this. And that I find terribly inspirational. And, and uh, uh, it's, it's, I'm sorry, I, I find that extremely inspirational, and I find it terrible that a lot of that energy has been squandered by this symbolic action. Uh, that's, that's sort of going to be the line, I think, of the article I'm looking to write when I come home. Uh, the story isn't the victory or the so-called victory, and the story isn't what the mainstream media or what the program, oh, my God, all these people came together. It was such a wonderful event. Let's move on to the future and do other things. No, the story is all of the contradictions that are happening within these camps, all of all of the the, the in, interesting intricacies of actually organizing. And these are the things that people don't want to talk about, but I'm sorry, folks, we have to talk about them. If we don't talk about these things, if we don't have honest conversations and critical conversations about where our movement is at, what we're capable of doing, uh, we shouldn't expect to win much. And those are the kind of conversations that I hope the people who are listening to this program are interested in having. And I'm sure you are if you're, again, tuning into this I'm not interested in these simplistic stories. I am interested in a revolution in this country. I've said that for 10 years, and I don't say that as some ridiculous person. I want significant, fundamental change, and not just that I want it. It is absolutely required for planetary survival. So the scientists and everyone are very clear on this. We have to drastically change the way that we consume energy, the way that we consume materials, the structure of our economy, we have to challenge capital. And anyone out there who's laughing or saying, oh, my goodness, this is so out there, blah, blah, blah. Well, we'll see. Time will tell. And I don't think you'll be saying the same thing in five or ten years. As, as a matter of fact, I promise you that. This was a dress rehearsal for the next four to eight years, folks. In fact, I would argue this is a dress rehearsal for the future. So these projects aren't going to stop anytime soon. What people need to do is organize serious resistance movements, serious organizations and infrastructures to deal with a future that the people see. This is a huge disconnect, too. When I go to local meetings and talk to people, progressives and so on, they think we have 10, 20, 30 years to build and we don't. The scientists are very clear about this, folks. And this is something I've stressed from the time that I've become more environmentally conscious, more ecologically conscious. We are running out of time. We need to build the bases of where these people come from. Showing up to events and going to uh, actions like this is absolutely essential. It's good. You get to meet people. I've made a ton of connections. I mean, amazing in that way. But it is utterly unsustainable. And the vast majority of people I've spoken to here, as I mentioned earlier, are just now getting engaged. This is the first event they've ever been to like this. Now, as far as the veterans are concerned, that's true as well. 
I would say that the older veterans outnumber young. I would say Vietnam veterans outnumber, say, Afghanistan and Iraq war veterans maybe two or three to one. And that makes sense for many different reasons. I would say, obviously, older people have more time on their hands. Uh, They have the money and the resources to be able to do things like this. So I think that's very real. Uh, But that's an observation I would make immediately. And from, again, the conversations I've had with veterans, we didn't come here just to do this symbolic action to get this small victory. And this I've always found interesting with the veterans that I've been engaged with over the years. They see it very clearly. It's not going to be voting people into office. It's not going to be any of this. There, there has to be a serious resistance movement in this country that is willing to strike the fear of God into the people who are in power. And there also has to be an above-ground movement of people who are able to challenge the existing political infrastructures and the existing political arrangements and economic arrangements that exist. It's not either or. But the amount of time that people are spending on electoral activism the amount of time people are spending on these sort of liberal endeavors that inspire no one is far disproportionate to the amount of time people are spending on action, not just actions like this, like, oh, just go to this action and, and, and participate, and that's the end of the story, and go home for another month or two or maybe a year and then show up to the next big event. No, and that's not what I'm saying. The positive here is that there is an energy to harness, and what I like about the people I've met here, particularly the veterans, is that they really get what's happening. They get that we can no longer play the same games, we can no longer do the status quo, we can no longer expect anything from the system, and the people here don't. And I find that absolutely encouraging. So this is much different than the people that I met along the way in other movements as well. But I think there is a sense of urgency in the environmental movement that we really need to pay attention to, not just because that's the reality, that we, don't, we literally don't have time, and that time is running out. But that for all of the other movements, and this is the same with Ferguson. You know, the Black Lives Matter movement, people, oh, my God, why are they so angry? Why, why, are they so, why is everything so urgent? Well, what I've found is working with Latino communities, Hispanic communities, black communities, indigenous communities, aboriginal communities, there's a sense of urgency because these communities, these populations, Uh, they have been destroyed over the years. Centuries and centuries of genocide, slavery, economic uh, inequality, uh, violence, uh, uh, male violence, drug abuse, alcohol abuse. There's a lot to process here. Anyone who's going to give you some clear story and say, oh, this is what happened and and, and this is it, that's not how this works. That's not how this works. People need to dig deep and ask critical questions. So, for instance, we had a couple of people who considered themselves tribal elders who were giving us a a briefing. The two women seemed nice enough. That's fine. But they obviously have no experience doing this, number one. Number two, they don't have anyone guiding them along the way, which is even worse. And number three they are making decisions for people who are coming from out of town and so on. So so there's a level of identity politics here as well. There's this idea that this is an indigenous-led movement, hence white people just need to shut up and sort of follow behind, and that's not how movements are built. So another thing that I've, I've experienced here is this sort of identity politics not tied to any kind of a political vision. 
So they're, the only sort of objective or so on that I've heard so far is to stop the pipeline, maybe stop all pipelines, but there's no agreement there among Native community or among the environmental activists who find themselves here. But a bigger political vision and how that vision ties to people in urban communities, how that vision ties to an international perspective, how that vision ties to uh, an anti-imperialist, anti-empire sort of politics, that is utterly lacking from any of the discussions that I've had and from any of the messaging that you'll see and from any of the conversations that you'll see uh, or speeches or interviews or so on. And so there's a, again, if you talk to the more radical indigenous activists and say the younger folks who are holding it down at the red warrior camp, doing the direct actions and so on that were so desperately needed. And that really were the, and let's remember too, folks, the reason that people know about this story isn't because of the veterans, because of the extreme police brutality, but the extreme police brutality aimed at who? Aimed at the direct action protesters, the anarchists and the so on, who are out there doing these kinds of direct actions. Not from the tribal elders. Now, you can't lump the tribal elders into one group either. There are elders within the group who are more radical. There were elders from other tribes that I met throughout the campsite who utterly disagreed and vehemently disagreed with the decision made to have the, the veterans stand down. So this isn't just me ranting and raving. This is, again, hundreds of conversations I've had with people over the last several days. Indigenous folks, non-Indigenous folks, environmental protesters, men, women, veterans of all stripes. So it doesn't matter what the identity of the person is. The issue that we're dealing with here is, is, is a, a division between people who want more radical action and people who understand the gravity of our situation and a tribal eldership, not unlike the union leadership or like, unlike the Democratic Party leadership, who have built themselves a position of power and influence, and they are not going to give that power and influence up easily. And they are going to redirect the energy of these movements into more milk toast events like the unfortunate one we are witnessing right now. I, I say unfortunate only because, again, most of the veterans who came here didn't come here for a symbolic march. We didn't come here to make friends with the police. Police are not our friends. And if you walked around the camps and you talked to people, especially veterans, they have an absolutely disgusting view of police, and rightfully so. People came here for radical action. Now, what I take away from that that is quite positive is that under the right leadership, within the right structures, in the right moments, and with the right training, you could have yourself a serious force of veterans in this country that could protect protesters. Say, say that's one of the tasks that, say, a civilian force could do, a civilian military force of veterans and their allies who hold progressive ideals, left-wing politics, and so on. That's a possibility. Uh, that's something that was also talked about here. I think what will come out of this also will be new organizations. And on the individual level, on the subjective level, as I mentioned before, this event is going to be a seminal event in the lives of many of the people here, myself included. I mean, I'm going to be thinking about this event for 
weeks and weeks and weeks and months and months and years to come. There's no question about that. I expressed to you some of my frustration and some of the critiques that I have now because these are the collective critiques and frustrations that I have felt throughout the camp. And that's interesting because it is, again, much like Wisconsin, uh, where the rank and file wanted to take more radical action, but then the union leadership and the Democratic leadership moved in and directed that energy to a failed recall campaign where they nominated some bozo Tom Barrett centrist piece of shit crap that, of course, nobody wanted to uh, vote for. And they didn't vote for him. They didn't show up for shit, just like John Gregg, another Indiana guy. You know, do nothing stands for nothing. Nobody gives a shit, and rightfully so. So we see the same thing in Wisconsin that we see here, tribal leadership, massive disconnect with the, with the native rank-and-file folks, massive disconnect between the so-called veteran leadership and the rank-and-file veteran. And I saw the same damn thing in Ferguson. So this isn't anything new, folks. And this is, it, I'm telling you this just from uh, anecdotal experience. There's a whole history of this in left-wing political movements, liberal political movements, progressive organizations, and so on. This has always been the case. This is why the goal is to create more democratic institutions. Of course, I think you're always going to have natural leaders. But the amount of power that those leaders have must be restrained. The amount of influence that those leaders have must be constantly questioned. We can't just let these so-called leaders lead us down the wrong path. And I think it's really important for folks to understand that they have to have the will and the courage to stand up and to say, look, we stand with you in solidarity. Yes, here's what we agree on, but here's where we disagree, and here's where we are not going to follow your leadership. And this is very important. People have to have the courage and the political – they have to be politically savvy enough to be able to do that. They have to be confident enough in their own position and in their own politics to do so. So those are my initial reflections of what's happening here. As I mentioned, there's a wicked storm coming in. There's a very wet snow falling now. It reads 31 degrees in the car, uh, so people are extremely wet, and it's going to get very cold overnight. I think the major concern here is immediately, and this is what everyone around our camp has been talking about, is like sort of health concern. There is a real concern for people's lives out here. Again, I don't know if anyone's ever been to areas like North Dakota, South Dakota. People are listening. Those of you who have been to these areas, you understand. Um, this is no bullshit out here. You have to be prepared. You have to have the right equipment. You have to understand what you're doing. You have to be with the right group of people to survive in conditions like this. There's literally people setting up in the middle of these rolling hills and starting from scratch. That is how these camps started. In these events, I went with a childhood friend of mine. I went with my friend Sergio, who uh, many of you have heard me talk about. Some of you probably know him. And I went with another gentleman, Vince, who, we, who I met through the anti-war movement. Uh, another Vince, different Vince. We call him Doc. You know, these events for people who haven't been involved, they are so important. You have to come to events like this. You have to come see these kinds of Occupy, Ferguson, uh, Wisconsin, uh, the major anti-war protests, uh, the medal returning ceremony and the NATO protests in Chicago. Uh, this event here in North Dakota. These kinds of events are very important. And they're important not just to say stop a project or to uh, finish a campaign or so on, but they're important because you get to meet 
dozens, hundreds, thousands of people from around the country and around the world, and you talk to each other. And yeah, you know, maybe you sit through some boring meetings during the day, and maybe you're talking to folks about, uh, you know, what you disagree with the leadership on or this or that. But then the real conversations never happen in the meetings. The real conversations never happen, uh, you know, on these prepackaged television programs and interview segments and so on. The real conversations happen back in people's tents, in their yurts, in their teepees, in the structures that have been built by hand here, and sitting around campfires for nights and nights on end, people sharing perspectives, different backgrounds. That's where these movements will be built. If you think they're going to be built in a boardroom or a meeting room, uh, I think you're thoroughly mistaken. You have to come out here. Uh, last year, particularly just this event, but you have to come out to events like this. It's good. And I think the more, you know, so the, so the thing that people really need to do when they get home is to do the day-to-day work. And the day-to-day work isn't fancy, and it's not, you know, my friend Roberto and I talk about this constantly, a gentleman I interviewed on last week's program. We need people to do the day-to-day work. It is, in some ways, as much as it's unglamorous to be sitting around in a snowstorm, uh, it is also glamorous. Everyone in the world knows what you're doing here. So you build energy from that. You know, when you see people's Facebook posts, I saw all these friends who were tagging me in posts. That gives me a certain level of energy to sustain this. But there's also a sort of glorification in that. And I'll tell you, the people who aren't glorified are the people who are doing day-to-day activist work, organizing work on the community and neighborhood level, maybe even on an international scale, a national scale, or a regional scale. Fine. The point is, is the very tedious work of actual political organizing is very unglamorous. And so most of the folks I've sat around and talked with, people I interviewed, they're they're very fresh to this, regardless of age. You know, I spoke to older Vietnam veterans yesterday who said, yeah, you know, I've been to a couple events, but I've never been to anything like this. I found that very interesting. Because these kind of events, these kinds of actions, Uh, They draw so many different people from so many different walks of life, and there's so much to learn. And there are people here who have been involved extensively with other political movements. So there's a lot of lessons to learn from the people who are here. Um, Oh, God, I should have came up with a list, actually, before I came on today. So I apologize again if this is the most jumbled broadcast ever, but you have to bear with me. I'm on a cell phone sitting in a car and (laughs) watching all uh, all these things happen around me. And I wanted to make sure to do today's program, and I wasn't particularly interested in marching in a symbolic march with the veterans. I've told people for years, and I don't know if people thought I was bullshitting or not. And I, what, what gives me hope is because, you know, I'm around all of these great people here at these camps, these rank-and-file veterans, these Native folks, these radical activists who are willing to put their lives on the line for these causes. And again, that's not being hyperbolic. And I keep I kept hearing people say the tribal leadership and the veteran leadership, we don't want anyone to get hurt, and we don't want anyone to die. Well, I'm sorry, folks. Anyone out there who's listening to this, if you think for a second that we're going to have successful political movements in this country without people being hurt or getting killed, you're out of your damn mind, and you know nothing about history, and you know not a damn thing about social movements or political movements, let alone revolutions. You cannot have revolutions. You cannot have significant fundamental political change 
without people putting their lives on the line? And how many times do we have 4,000 veterans, let's say half of them, which would be a, a conservative estimate, let's say half of them are willing to put their lives on the line for a cause like this. So you're telling me today, right now, with all these media vans up here, with probably 250 reporters that I stood in line with yesterday from all walks of life all over the world, that the coverage and that the, the intent, the action, wouldn't have been more successful, wouldn't have been more historic, and wouldn't have had greater success if we would have lined up 2,000 veterans, maybe four in a row, and four at a time walked through that barricade, and if indeed the rules at this camp are nonviolence, well, civil disobedience is nonviolence, direct action is nonviolence. And as you know, I've mentioned this in the past, and I think the good book to read on Gandhi is uh, Norman Finkelstein's book. I think it's called Gandhi's Satyagraha, so his concept of nonviolence. You, to quote Gandhi, have to walk smilingly and willingly into a hail of gunfire. And that's not to glorify Gandhi, goofball, really goofy ideas and so on. If you read his direct writings, uh, you'll learn that. But read Finkelstein's book on, on Gandhi. It's good enough for people to get an overview. But all that aside, people are interested in nonviolent civil disobedience. Martin Luther King and people in the civil rights movement didn't tell people, hey, you're not going to have to sacrifice your body. You're not going to have to sacrifice your life. You're going to get all of these things, and you're going to challenge the most powerful companies in the world, the, oil, the same oil companies that sent us overseas, the same oil companies who are willing to kill millions of people across the world in the, in the Middle East, in South America, in Africa, in East Asia. Oh, yeah, these companies are going to give you what you want, but nobody's going to have to get hurt or die. We're just going to do some symbolic marches, and then you're going to have some bullshit decision like yesterday where they kicked the can down the road to Donald Trump. And, folks, again, they have put 95% of this pipeline in. Anyone, again, who thinks that this is over or that these companies are just going to move on and then they're not going to stick with their investments and that they're not sitting around plotting and planning right now, as my, as my friend Ramon mentioned today in social media, and I completely agreed with him. They are plotting and planning every day, and they're willing to take drastic measures. We should be plotting and planning every day and willing to take drastic measures. That's the only way you're going to beat an enemy like this. And you're not going to go at them head-to-head. You're going to have to think like a gorilla. You're going to have to think like a gorilla warrior. You're going to have to think like an insurgency. That's the message I'm getting from hundreds and thousands of people who are here. And that is a far cry from the kind of messaging that somebody like Tulsi Gabbard or Wesley Clark or any of these so-called progressive liberal heroes are saying. Like, this, this, is, uh, this is not the message that they are expressing, but this is the message I'm hearing from the rank-and-file folks here. And I actually think for a long time I thought to myself, you know, a lot of people on the left, a lot of these movements, they're not ready for this kind of radical change. This event actually changed my mind, and so did Ferguson two years ago. What Ferguson showed me was that there is an entire generation of black activists who are ready for revolution. They're tired of the legislation. They're tired of going through the courts, which never work. They're tired of going through the electoral system, which only gets worse and worse as the years go on. Um, it's quite clear. It is quite clear that there are people out there who are not being organized. These are people who very, very rarely vote. These are people who have been through extremely terrible situations. In many cases, the veterans and the natives I spoke to, black people I spoke to in Ferguson and other parts of the country who are working with different movements like Black Lives Matter. 
you know, their leadership in the black community are saying, oh, you know, we want to reform police. We want community policing. That's not what I'm hearing from younger activists. Younger black activists I'm talking to are saying we want to abolish policing as such. Same thing here. Hearing from the leadership in the veterans community, you know, hey, we, we don't want anyone to get hurt. We don't want anyone to die here. We came here to help the Native people, and, and our job is done, and that's not where the majority of veterans are coming from. And it was the same thing with the tribal leadership throughout the weekend, constantly talking in these sort of very liberal, milk-toast terms. And as soon as those meetings were over or as soon as those presentations were over, back to the camps, sitting outside, smoking with people, that's not where the Native rank-and-file are coming from. They're willing to put their lives on the line. You see, folks, those of us who are young, under the age of 35, let's say, maybe 35 is cutting it, but I want to be in that group, I guess. Um, those of us under 35, we got nothing to lose. I don't have a retirement that I'm looking forward to. I don't have a big house. I don't own a house. I don't own shit. Uh, the people who are here, they don't own shit. They don't have a retirement or a salary to protect. And we know what the future is going to bring. So all you older folks out there who are listening to this who are going to uh, process this information, process this analysis, you have to understand that the younger generation does not have the kind of material resources to lose uh, that the older generation has. And therefore, the younger generation is much more inclined in many, many ways to, be, I think, be involved and be engaged with more radical action, and rightfully so. We don't see a future Okay. Anyone out there who's reading the climate reports, anyone out there who's reading some of the great authors out there talking about the environment, people like Derek Jensen, people like Vandana Shiva, people like Arundhati Roy, people like Winona LaDuke, understand that we are running out of time, that we do not have the time to do the same things that the older generation did for 30, 40 years. We don't have that time. We will be lucky to have drinking water in 20 or 30 years in this country. We will be lucky in the, in the world to have an environment to live in 50 to 100 years from now, beyond lucky. And that's just from the human perspective. That's not all of the other living creatures and all of the other living ecosystems that we've destroyed along the way and on this path. So for the people out there who are criticizing, you know, young black activists, young black citizens, young black people in places like Baltimore or Ferguson for starting things on fire and rioting, for the people who are criticizing uh, the direct action activists led by young Native Americans at the Red Warrior camp who are out there challenging the police, bringing attention to this struggle, because uh, it surely wasn't, people weren't going to be interested uh, through a podcast or through another TV program or another BS meeting or whatever, a debate or whatever the heck, an article. The thing that drew people here was the, the courage of the direct action protesters on the front line, many of them young and many of them native primarily, who drew attention to this issue and then inspired thousands and thousands of people to show up here. It wasn't the tribal leaders who inspired people. It was those young activists. And I remain inspired by those young activists. So as much as I'm upset with the symbolic gesture today, I think it was a, a, a real, really made potentially the, the biggest squandering of radical energy I've ever seen. The positive of this is that we are meeting 
hundreds and thousands of veterans and young Native Americans who are prepared to put their lives on the line, to put their health on the line, to put whatever limited material resources they have on the line, to create serious resistance movements that are on par with the systems and the institutions that we face, capitalism, corporations, the state apparatus, the police state, the army, and so on. The reaction to those forces has to be proportionate, and the organization has to be better, and those are the things we need to focus on. So that's my first dispatch and only dispatch that you will hear straight from Standing Rock. I am going to compose an article when I get home. It'll be quite a lengthy article. I don't know who's going to publish it quite yet. I'll probably throw it out to a few folks. Um, yeah, I mean, there's so there's so much to say. There's so many reflections. This is just off the top of my head and conversations we had today, particularly around this squandering of, of energy because a lot of the veterans, when they found out, a lot of them showed up uh, last night and today, when they found out that there would be no direct action, extremely disappointed. And, uh, and I think that's something we need to remember, and this is something we need to not only build off of, but this is something we need to learn from. So, anyway, folks, I will talk to you next Sunday. I'm your host, Manuelli. This is the Progressive Radio Network. You're listening to Meditations in Molotov. Where you can find us here every Monday at 1 p.m. Central Time. Organic. Organic.